turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Welcome back, America. Haviv Reddick-Gur has become familiar to many of you who listen to Dan Senor's podcast. He joins me from Jerusalem this morning. Welcome back, Haviv. Uh, I gather you were in the United States for 10 days. Where where did you go and what were you doing and who were you speaking with? I was on a speaking tour mostly with the Jewish community um, all over the place. I mean, the East Coast, basically. Philly, Atlanta, Miami, Baltimore, New York, D.C., it was busy. I heard your interview with your Times of Israel colleague describing the fear that American Jewry feels. Um, did it surprise you? Because anti-Semitism in the United States has kind of exploded in the last two months. It, it doesn't surprise me that many people are afraid. But I did hear your conclusion. They're more fearful than the Israelis are. And the Israelis are the one getting hit with rockets. To what do you attribute that? Yeah, well, first of all, it surprised me um, tremendously because the whole story of American Jews, I mean, in one sentence, the story of the 20th century for Jews is that the only Jews who survived the 20th century either learned English or learned Hebrew. And so the English-speaking world and mostly America didn't behave the way the rest of the world behaved to the Jews in the 20th century. It's The Jewish experience is, is if you ever feel bad about America or bad about some trend America's going through or bad about something in American history, look at the Jewish experience and you'll feel good again. It's It's been, America's been a, a homeland, a redemption for Jews. And so this sense of real fear about the future is not new. American Jews couldn't get into Harvard in the 30s. And, the, you know, there was anti-Semitism over the course of American history, but it, it it was always it was always the sideshow. It was always marginal compared to the big story of acceptance and of belonging. And so I do think that now there is a fear and it comes from politics. It comes from the sense of the new politics of identity. If America isn't the liberal promise that America has made to American Jews, that America has made to all of all Americans over the last 200 years and often failed to fulfill the promise. But ultimately, generation after generation, you could always, America could always call itself to task um, on that premise, on that promise. Um, If that's not true about America, then American Jews are not um, sort of saved from Jewish history, saved from the pain, saved from, from, from living in someone else's country. And for the first time, I met American Jews, and I've known American Jews for a long time. Um, I, half of my childhood was in the United States. I, I professionally deal all the time with the English-speaking world. Um, for the first time, I'm hearing American Jews afraid, afraid of um, America's future, afraid of where a lot of the new political ideologies and political movements are going. They're going toward identitarianism. They're going toward a place where the Jews end up uh, marginalized intentionally, where 
there's talk about Jewish control and Jewish conspiracy and Jews not belonging and Jews as oppressors. Jews in America, this isn't even an Israeli-Palestinian question. That's sort of a vocabulary for really directing blame at American Jews. And for American Jews who are the second most left-wing constituency in the United States, I believe, second to uh, black Americans, if you look at uh, at least in the in terms of percent voting for Obama, I think black Americans in Obama's first election voted for him 87 percent. I think Jews were 84 percent. It's something like that. Jews are incredibly left wing and the left is the one that they now are experiencing turning their backs on them. And that's that leaves them without anchor. That leaves them floating. That leaves them scared of the future. I don't that's, know. If that's you what I heard. To... And I heard it again and again. Neil Ferguson, the historian at Stanford, making an argument that American universities today are becoming like the German universities in the 1920s. And that extends to this question to you. Uh, from the Dreyfus affair forward and, and the first convening of the Zionists in Switzerland, I guess in 1897, Herzl brought it together. For those next 30 years, it just went downhill for Jews in Europe. And it began, of course, in Russia, there were always pogroms. But in Germany, Jews had assimilated and they were part of the elite. They were part of the academic elite, part of the medical and scientific elite. But the country turned on them beginning with the universities. And then it ended up being the Holocaust in Germany. The question is, does America have it in it to be that anti-Semitic, do you think? Is that, you know, Neil Ferguson is quite convinced that an American academy, the university, to become anti-Semitic, uh, just root and branch. Do you, do you think we have the capacity to get much worse in the United States in the way that Germany did over 40 years? Hugh, you're going right to the, to the painful heart of the question, uh, the heart of the matter. Um, the social critic Theodore Adorno once said that a world in which Auschwitz had happened is a world that forever must be a world in which Auschwitz can happen. There's nothing genetically unique about Germans. There's no all humans are capable of what all humans are capable of. And so it is not okay. It is not intellectually valid to say America can't. But everything America is, is a country that can't do that. And so um, I, I'll put it this way. America has a much longer um, way to go before getting anywhere within that, you know, time zone of that kind of um, genocidal impulse than anything happening in Europe in the 1930s. It's not there. It's not close to there. It's not at the beginning of the processes that will turn into that in three generations. That's not to say it can't get there. All human societies can get there. That's what we learned in World War II. That's what we learned in the Holocaust. So the short answer is, I'm very optimistic that what is right about America, as this famous saying goes, what is right about America will always be stronger than what is wrong about America. America just resisted all these impulses in real time in the 30s when it was popular. It resisted these impulses when most Americans were sort of banally anti-Semitic. It resisted these impulses. And I don't think that now it's going to go there. What I do think is that the... The injection through academia of these essentially European identitarian political ideas and Marxist ideas that pretend to be universalist, but somehow always find some group to to step on. In Europe, that was always the Jews. Somehow in college campuses, it's weirdly turning to be the, in, to be the Jews, right? Why, why would that be? 
that is coming into American society. America is Europeanizing. America is secularizing. Um, some of these processes are great. Some of them are very troubling. Depends on where you are in terms of politics and religion and all of that. But there's no question that a lot of the processes that we saw in Europe are, are now coming to America. They're coming through the intellectual class. Um, the danger exists. Yeah, I and think again, complacency is complacency is what scares me about America more than anything else because. What was basically a class-based anti-Semitism up into the 30s, and it was in the British elite as well. It was in mandatory Palestine. It was a class-based anti-Semitism. Now it's an ideological anti-Semitism of oppressor versus oppressed. And I know you've heard about this and have talked about it, and I will talk about it with Daniel Gordis and John Podhortz later today. That ideology is very dangerous to the Jews. It just is, because they are identified way back in propaganda that dates back to Russia in the in the 19th century to this very day. And if that ideology isn't taken out of the universities, we're in trouble. Let me turn to the current events. There's a cyber. Well, first, let me uh, extend my sympathies. It must be traumatic in Israel to have three hostages killed by the IDF. And I don't even know how to begin to um, calculate what that meant or what it means. But it must be a terrible burden for the entire country. Yeah, it's I mean, it's horrifying. Um, it's it's a violation of our basic, you know, of not what the war is about, but 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 what Israel is about. Um, it, it's also part of what's happening in Gaza and part of understanding what's happening in Gaza is the simple point that um, everything Hamas does, it does on this question of civilian deaths, everything that Hamas is, the strategy of building that underground metro, those those hundreds of kilometers of, of bunkers and tunnels, the whole system is built to the, those soldiers who open fire, first of all, they need to be taken to task, there was an absolute it was they acted wrong, they behaved wrong. But what Hamas has done multiple times, and those soldiers experienced were traps were essentially what they call um, a, an attraction attack. An attraction attack is you create a reason for soldiers to come into a place, and that place is booby-trapped. And so in that attraction attack was what they thought was happening. Um, they broke the army rules. They behaved incorrectly, absolutely in every way. But the the psychology of what was happening to those soldiers is, is something that I, I can't help but feel deep, deep sympathy to. These are the ones who opened fire, you know, Obviously, the people killed, their families are destroyed, but the ones who open fire, their lives are also um, uh, not going to be the same lives. Now, so it's, in, it's a tragedy, and the whole country has been dealing with it. The anti-Israel legacy media in the United States is running with this kind of story. There's a headline from the Wall Street Journal that's not left-wing, but it's not right-wing either. Hostage deaths at the hands of Israeli soldiers raise questions about war strategy. Accidental killings underscore risks of prolonged ground invasion in Gaza. I think that's nonsense, but what do you think, Avi Rediger? Hamas can't survive this as a regime in Gaza. I, I don't know an Israeli who disagrees with that. So if, if you know, we've, we've spent, I have spent 70 days telling the world, anyone who asks me, we will topple that regime in Gaza. And if it takes a week, fantastic, fantastic for everybody. And if it takes six months, that's horrifying and tragic. But that's what we will do. Hamas has done nothing for 17 years, but make its own removal from Gaza a catastrophe for Palestinian civilians. And then it made, and then it created October 7th and made it impossible for us to let them remain in Gaza. And so we have to walk through the catastrophe Hamas created 
as a deterrent to us ever attacking Hamas, to us ever uprooting Hamas. But now we have to uproot Hamas. And that's not going to change. And if the government doesn't see this war through, then it'll be replaced in a week with a government that will see this war through. And so all of this for 70 days we've seen in the media in the West, will they do this? Will they do that? When will they realize they're bogged down? Are we all seeing Afghanistan happen all over again? And the simple answer is the Israelis are not in that headspace. This will be something that we will see through. That is it's the only conclusion I can come to. It's been 10 weeks. If it takes 100 weeks until Hamas is destroyed, it cannot relent. But now we have Bill Burns, the CIA director, going with the head of Mossad of Israel to Warsaw. And we have a minute to the break. What do you think this is? What is going on in Warsaw? I just, you know, I, I don't know the details of each meeting, but the coordination is incredibly close and not only incredibly close. The Biden administration has asked Israel to get the job done. It wants to lower the death toll. It wants to learn how to lower the death toll. It wants to figure all that out in terms of Palestinian civilian deaths. I think that's a great thing. But the request and the demand that we get the job done, that's something that, uh, that we've seen from the Biden administration and has been consistent. I'm going to talk with Haviv during the break and then bring him back on the other side. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back with Haviv Redigur. Welcome back, America. I'm talking with Haviv Redigur from the Times of Israel. Haviv, last week, Jake Sullivan came to Israel, and it turned into something of a public relations disaster when coupled with President Biden's off-the-cuff face plant about indiscriminate bombing. Jake Sullivan gave four or five different interviews to try and walk everything back, and then he fled the country and got back to the United States. But now we're sending Lloyd Austin. Do the Israelis get tired of this relay race? It's sort of like HR department to the world, bothering everyone with their ideas on how things ought to be done? Or do you have to just patiently smile and say, thank you for your guidance? That's a good question. Uh, and a good way to ask the question. I'll put it, I'll put it this way, as, as I understand it. Um, the Biden administration has asked Israel to finish the job, to get the job done with Hamas, and has been there and has been um, pushing forward on this and, and keeping the political window open. And at the same time, I I think, and Hugh, you'll know better than me, frankly, I, I you know, I'm watching from the outside, but I think the Biden administration has also been creating this distance, creating this criticism of the Israeli government, not criticism that comes in and says, here's specific things you can do better in the war fighting. We're fighting a war no one has ever quite fought before. It's a little bit similar to how America fought ISIS, not exactly the same. But basically, the Biden administration has said, you know, has, has tried to create this, this um, illusion of distance between itself and the Israeli government. And I, I read that as part of the politics of the Democratic Party. Biden is under tremendous pressure from his left. And creating that critique of, of, of the Israeli government allows him to answer that pressure. Uh, but at the same time, in, in all the ways that matter, the window has been kept open and things have, have moved forward. And, and um, you know, if, if Israel needs certain kinds of weapons, if Israel needs certain, a political window at the UN to remain open, it has gotten that from the Biden administration. The meeting in Warsaw with Bill Burns was about hostages, right? And America has been there and, and willing to push a little bit the Qataris who work with Hamas, support Hamas, and Hamas listens to. So it's a story of a lot of rhetoric that is aggressive, that is pressuring, but on the things that matter on the ground in terms of leaving Israel the time to get the job done on the ground, this U.S. administration has done what Israel needs. You see, I think 
Team Biden is dancing on the edge of a realignment. They may actually lose a significant amount of support of Democrats who are primarily concerned with the support of Israel. Some of those are Jewish American Democrats. A lot of them are not Jewish American Democrats who just view Israel as our Democratic ally, the number one uh, uh, ally in the worst part of the world that we need an ally. And I think if he pushes too far, if they let Kamala Harris keep making statements that are inane, word south, I think they can lose that vote, Haviv. But it will. It'd be, we got a minute till we got to come back. So I want to just give you 90 seconds. Have you seen any indication yet of, a, of an Israeli war cabinet minister? Maybe Gantz, maybe Gallant getting close to saying, all right, that's it. You guys have just got to stop uh, hectoring us. It's basically hectoring the war cabinet. My sense is that there's a lot of gratitude and the gratitude is there because it is helpful. It is also important to understand we don't mind American criticism precisely because we don't depend on America here. We will get this job done without America. And if America pushes us to the to the wall and, and, and makes it harder, if, if the, we are more vulnerable, we become more fierce. We don't walk away from this. And so if we're going to do it anyway, and America is there helping, and it needs to constantly hector us while helping because America has its own internal dynamics, great, fine. There's a, there's a, well, you, there's a willingness, have, there's, there's a you, confidence. You have far more patience than I do, Habib. We're coming right back on the, on the network as well. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. Habib Redigur with the Times of Israel. And I refresh my Times of Israel button every day. You ought to as well. Habib, I want to conclude today's conversation by talking about this story from the Times of Israel. Senior Palestinian Authority official Hamas must reconsider all its policies and methods after the war. In a quote developed by the name of Hussein al-Sheikh, the PA Civil Affairs Minister and Secretary General of the Palestinian Liberation Organization's Executive Committee. Now, I confess, I don't know anything about the PA beyond Abbas. I don't know anything about Hamas beyond Sinwar. Is there really anything to work with in Gaza after the war? By anything, I mean a responsible civil society that can be raised up to administer a Marshall Plan to be a Yoshida, to be an Adenauer. I asked you this two weeks ago. Now we've got this fellow speaking up. Is the PA getting reformed? Hossein al-Sheikh is the primary candidate to replace Abbas. And what he has an impossible job. The PA is absolutely hated. It's hated by everyone. It's hated by the Palestinians. They actually rule over in the Palestinian areas of the West Bank, in, in the major cities. And, and I mean, they're down to, in many places, single-digit uh, favorability rating, popularity rating. So um, he, the Biden administration wants the PA to move into Gaza, to run Gaza, if only so that Israel doesn't get bogged down in an eternal military rule there. Um, and uh, the Israelis are very worried about that. By the way, left-wing Israelis who want a Palestinian state and want this war to end with Palestine, with a huge move toward Palestinian independence, they don't think the PA can handle it. And so, by and large, most of them. And so the PA has to dance between a lot of different raindrops. Hamas is popular in the West Bank, where the PA rules. By the way, much less popular in Gaza, where the devastation it has wreaked is, is much clearer to people. Um, and the PA is very unpopular. But the PA is the world's best option for moving into Gaza after. But Israel doesn't want it to do so. So it has to show the Israelis it can run Gaza, keep Israel safe, show the Americans it can. it's physically up to the task. It can just administratively show Palestinians it isn't anti-Hamas. It won't be riding into Gaza on the back of an Israeli tank, which is illegitimate. Show <laughs> their own constituents 
um, that they can nevertheless defeat Hamas and not just with Israeli guns, right? So they are in an impossible situation trying to navigate all that. And that's how you get statements like what you mentioned from al-Sheikh. Um, the simple, you know, you just asked the million dollar question about Gaza, who runs Gaza after? What is the indigenous Palestinian political solution for Gaza? And it's not Hamas. I have an extremely hard time imagining that it's the PA. There's going to be a Hamas insurgency long after the war is actually over, an Israeli counterinsurgency, and then we begin to build some kind of alternative. The good news is there is a Palestinian civil society that isn't part of any of the big ideological factions. We're talking about clans, tribes, um, really clans. I mean, extended families that are basically how Gazan society functions and and how you understand how Palestinians understand their own society. On the basis of these clans, Hamas built its power. And on the basis of these clans, you can build alternative power centers that can take over and rule Gaza. Um, and so there is a, a deep, long process that has to happen of building new alternative power bases. Hamas has spent 17 years brutally suppressing any alternative to its rule. Fatah clans and families and government institutions have been systematically wiped out in the Gaza Strip under Hamas. And so everything has to be rebuilt from scratch. I don't think there's another alternative. Egypt's not going to run it. Israel can't run it over the long term. It's just not a viable option. You know, there has, we've gotten from the Saudis and the Emiratis a statement that they're willing to move in and be part of that solution. But it has to be strengthening, bolstering, funding, supporting some kind of indigenous Palestinian uh, political answer. Habib, you remember the Sunni awakening that happened following the surge in Iraq after the first loss of American momentum and the the uprising, the insurgency took over, and then we surged troops after the 2006 election. George W. Bush doubled down, sent David Petraeus. It was successful because the Sunni clans, the Sunni tribes in Iraq, decided they did not like al-Qaeda anymore, and they rejected Zarqawi. Does such a network of elders and clans exist that's just offstage that we cannot see that can be harnessed in the same way by someone other than Israel? Because Israel, as you say, they will delegitimize whatever Israel touches in the West Bank and in Gaza. The short answer is yes. Oh. It works a little differently. It looks a little different. But the short answer is this is a rich, complex society. There's two million Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Plus, my, I mean, a little more than that. And and there there is a, a social world, a social network um, that can be transformed into a political solution. It has to come from them. Israel's job is to wipe away that layer of Hamas that prevents all of that from happening and has prevented it for two decades. Good luck in that. Keep coming back, Aviv. I look forward every Monday to your conversations with Dan Senor on Call Me Back Pod, which I think is probably the most listened to pod in America at this point, along with commentary. It's great to speak with you, Aviv. Thank you for coming back, and, and I look forward to talking to you next time. Be safe. Thanks, you. Thank you. Uh, when I come back, America, next hour, John Podhortz is going to join me. Hour number three, Daniel Gordis is coming along, the author of Impossible Takes Longer, and more importantly, the author of Israel, Concise History of a Nation Reborn, which ought to be on the reading list of every American. It really is that good, and it will fill in a lot of the blanks for you on why this war is different and why it's going to be different in Gaza going forward. Daniel Gord is coming up with Eve Redding Gura behind us, John Podhortz in the front view mirror, so don't go anywhere you're listening to The Hugh Jewish. Hope for the best. 
Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That is a song from 12 Chairs, a movie about which I knew nothing until after becoming hooked on the commentary podcast. I asked my producer, what is this? And he informed me it's from the Mel Brooks movie, The 12 Chairs. John Podhortz joins me. It's because of John that I have now heard every single day for the last month, The 12 Chairs. Why do you start the most listenable podcast in America with The 12 Chairs every day, John? It's the theme of the song. So The Twelve Chairs is a movie made in 1970, um, a an unsuccessful Mel Brooks movie, the only one he made adapted from material, not his own, a Russian novel, comic Russian novel written in the 1920s about a con artist. And uh, But it, he wrote a song for it, the theme, theme song, which is called Hope for the Best, Expect the Worst. Some drink champagne, some die of thirst. You could be Tolstoy or Fanny Hurst, and uh, it seemed the perfect theme for a podcast uh, from a Jewish magazine uh, where the general historical theme, as you may know now, is uh, is that uh, don't worry, no matter how bad things are, they're probably only going to get worse. worse. So that that was that was how we announced ourselves. I want everyone to subscribe to the commentary podcast and to the magazine. It's imp- it's been a crucial part of the life of the center right in America since I began reading it in 1978. And it marks the evolution of American intellectual life greatly. John is its editor. John, I want to do three things. First of all, I'll help you raise some money because you're very bad at this. I did PBS fundraisers forever, right? For 10 years, I was with PBS and I did it with Lou Grant, Ed Asner. And we used to ask for money repeatedly and we gave the number out and we begged throughout the show. You talked about Jerry Lewis and the and the uh, MD fundraiser, and then the Chabad fundraiser got mixed up in there. You guys are the worst at asking for money. You've just got to do it relentlessly, John. You know, this just proves that cultural stereotypes are false, Hugh. <laughs> right? That's Who's true. supposed to be really good at raising money? Jewish people. You're a nice, you know, you're a nice Christian man. You should be far more forbearing, and not, and so. I do what I can. I do what I can. I'm a little embarrassed. But yes, Commentary is a nonprofit, 501c3. It's the end of the year. This is the time for giving. Uh, anyone who listens, reads, uh, finds profit in our viewpoint, very easy, commentary.org slash donate. Um, and, uh, and we very much appreciate anybody's support. Now, I just put up the link now, because I of something you, that- something you said last week. Never ha- this might be the moment for which commentary was founded. And I would like you to explain right. that a little bit because it resonated with me. I said, you know, that's right. This might be the moment for when commentary was founded. Commentary was founded in November 1945 at the after after the conclusion of World War II. And its mission was a sociological one. Uh, started by the American Jewish Committee, then the most prominent uh brotherhood organization among Jews in the United States. And the idea was that it was going to be the great, the best expression of Jewish American thought that could be produced by a publication with the purpose of explaining America to Jewish people and explaining Jewish people to America. That's a very lofty task for a very small base, small circulation magazine, highbrow monthly, but that was its intent. And then, you know, three years later, the state of Israel came into being, and though there was there was a great deal of controversy uh, among American Jewry about 
whether or not Israel was a good or a bad idea. Once there was a Jewish state, the community fell in line with the notion that there were hundreds of thousands and then millions of Jews, uh, you know, in peril in the Middle East who needed to be supported and defended and argued for. And so we have existed now for 78 years with uh, these multiple missions, uh, defending Israel, uh, serving as a bulwark against anti-Semitism, and as the politics of the United States began to shift, defending the West, defending the West's institutions, defending the United States from the intellectual left that had lost faith, confidence, and trust in it, uh, and making the argument for this as the greatest as a country on, on God's green earth. So when October 7th happens, but that's a very broad mission, right? And very, um, you know, it's impo- all of it is important. Uh, when October 7th happened, Israel came on into existential threat in some ways for the first time since the 1948 question of whether or not what we see here is the opening salvo in a war from Israel uh, staged by Iran through its proxies, for example. Um, the idea that, and that we saw this uh, in the wake of this uh, completely unprecedented and unanticipated and unprovoked massacre of the equivalent of 23,000 Americans in a single morning, that um, uh, the Jewish community, both uh, in Israel and as it turned out in the United States and across the world, may never have been in as much threat in the existence of the magazine. So what you could say is, in some historical providential sense, that commentary has built up cultural capital over the last um, eight decades for the purpose of being here authoritative, understood to be authoritative and important to make the arguments that need to be made against this onslaught, uh, particularly in the United States and this growing uh, rise of anti-Semitism. Just yesterday, a synagogue that I uh, used to attend sporadically in Washington, D.C., in Georgetown, Kesher, an Orthodox synagogue, a man shows up outside the door, starts saying, shrieking, gas the Jews, and starts spraying at the doorway a foul-smelling liquid uh, into the air. He is finally apprehended by the police, but um, this is what is going on now almost routinely in the United States, not only on college campuses, but in cities, and we'll see increasingly whether or not this happens at um, accessible synagogues and things like that. In my lifetime, I'm 62 years old, I've never seen anything remotely like this, somebody pointed out that uh, between the lynching of Leo Frank in Atlanta in 1915 um, and the slaughter of 11 Jews at the Tree of Life Synagogue in 2018, in the United States, the most philo-Semitic country that has ever existed, um, there had never been like a Jew killed for being a Jew. I mean, there, there were a couple of there was a there was a case on the Brooklyn Bridge in 1991, and there were other little. But basically, Jews were not targeted for being Jews specifically in the United States for almost for more than a century, and now on a daily basis, Jews are being targeted in petty ways, not just murderous ways. Yeah, John, I on the internet, I yeah. just had Raviv uh, Haviv Redigur on. 
And I pointed out to him that Neil Ferguson released to the free press last week an argument that American universities are now where German universities were in the 20s. And I asked him, did he think it was possible in the United States that the United States would go the way of Germany? Because Germany was where uh, European Jews were most assimilated and also became where they became the victims of the greatest atrocity in recorded in human history. And the GoPro program, program you know, where they had, the terrorists had the GoPro cameras sl- strapped on their head, the GoPro program ought to have turned everyone in favor of American Jewry. It's had the opposite effect right. of drawing out all the poison. And I'm kind of stunned. Right. I, 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 and I think Jews well, are so actually I. afraid. So am I. Jews are afraid. Jews are afraid in this way for the first time in their lives. Jews have been afraid like everybody else in America, like they were urban population. Uh, You know, 40 percent of them, 50 percent of them lived within 10 miles of New York City uh, in the 1970s. And they were very afraid of crime and crime in their neighborhoods. And some of it was black on white crime or black on Jewish crime. And they were very afraid. But I don't think people were afraid of attack because they were Jews and where Neil Ferguson makes an important analogy, though I don't think that I think it's a, it's important uh, as a warning shot, but I, I don't think it can really happen here in the same way, is that is that the reason to note the similarity between German universities and American universities is that people are under the delusion that these populist explosions that often lead to anti-Semitism are all by the unwashed, you know, they're by the proletariat, they're by, you know, what Hillary Clinton called the deplorables. And in fact, this is a, a, a an elite-led attack on the Jewish people that is going on here. It is this uh, intersectionality, the idea that Jews are white colonial oppressors and therefore that the Israelis who got killed deserved what they got and that and that Hamas is in the right and Israel is in the wrong. These are not ideas that, you know, a a Trump voter who is a Darlington Speedway cheering on, you know, stock car racing. That's not their idea. This is an idea bred on college campuses by Kimberly Crenshaw, the inventor of the idea of intersectionality by by uh, by people like that. And and it's been sort of 30, 35 years in the making. Ideas have been gestating uh, in the academy uh, and, you know, enough people have been trained in them over the course of 35 years to be there kind of as shock troops when the trouble started. And you take social media, which makes it very easy to organize people, right, just to say, come to Columbus Circle or come to, you know, come to the Grove or the Farmer's Market in L.A. or to the Magnificent Mile in Chicago at 9 p.m. because we're going to have a big, uh, big dust up. Um, you can get a thousand people there in an hour if you need to. And maybe that's not that many people out of 330 million in the United States, but it sure makes a lot of noise. And then they break a lot of windows and they steal a lot of stuff and they start screaming slogans. Some of them are metaphorically uh, Israel genocidal, like from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. And then some of them are like the guy who drove past the Israeli embassy saying, you are all oppressors and we will kill you all. And it is routine now on X to see videos of women walking into random restaurants to take down Israeli flags and then getting into 
verbal altercations with it's it's actually kind of astonishing to me what's happened john that is I, my I, neighborhood that video that you mentioned is it? you mentioned is a, a restaurant called the hummus kitchen it's on 74th in amsterdam and you can see it it came what went up last night someone walks into a restaurant where there's an israeli flag hanging in the window and pulls it down john stand by for a second if i can i'll give you one more second because i think a realignment okay. is happening in america uh, Dwayne will check with John, see if he can come back after the break. I think a realignment is going to happen because of this, because ordinary Americans are not putting up with this. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Live this morning, coming up next hour, Daniel Gordas, historian extraordinaire, joins me. He's the author of Israel, A Nation Reborn, A Brief History of a Nation Reborn. It's a fine one-volume history of how the state of Israel came to be as it is, but it was written before 107. I want to catch up with him. I'm joined by John Podhortz right now. John, I want you to opine a little bit. The thing that has been most surprising to me in the last 10 weeks that Israel has been at war is the relative sanguinity. Uh, uh, You guys are very, very relaxed about the Democratic Party when I listen to you. You all think that Biden and the relay race, it's Lloyd Austin this week. It was Jake Sullivan last week. It was Tony Bleakin. They go over and they hector the Israeli war cabinet, and then they come back. And I think I hear you saying that, don't worry about it. They're, they're strong. They're doing this for their base. I think the Democratic Party is fracturing, and I am not at all assured that they're going to stand by Israel. Why are you sanguine about this? Oh, I'm not sanguine about that at all. I'm simply uh, trying to analyze the situation day by day. And day by day, I think that, the, that Biden himself, I'm not sure about everybody else, that Biden himself has withstood pressures that I did not believe he had it within him to withstand, to flip uh, on this matter, say to Israel, sue for peace, you know your part in this, you know how you feel. Remember, he is only president because he was Barack Obama's vice president. Imagine Barack Obama after 10-7, and you know that the United States' position on these matters would have been wildly, radically different. There would have been lip service paid to the idea that Israel had the right to defend itself. But maybe they shouldn't do it this way. Maybe we could call a meeting in, in uh, you know, I don't know, Vienna, where we could have everybody come sit down at the table and remember... We don't want to get Iran too worked up because we're desperately trying to bring Iran back into the community of nations. Biden is the leader of a party that has uh, largely turned on Israel, and he is refusing to follow it down that road, as opposed to situations like the Inflation Reduction Act or other acts uh, that he has taken as president that seem to violate or contradict things that he ran on. Um, So I'm struck by this. I take it as being almost providential that, and um, I keep uh, making reference to the um, story in the Bible um, that is known as a Balaam's ass, which I know you as a literate know. (laughs) So Balaam is a, is a prophet, actually a magician and he is sent out by an anti-Semitic king to go and curse the Jews at a time when the Bible accepts that his curse of the Jews would actually be supernaturally effective. 
And so he sets out on his donkey to go curse the Jews. And as he's riding on the donkey, the donkey turns and starts talking to him and saying, why are you doing this? What's the matter with you? And he says, why are you talking? You're a donkey. And the donkey says, I am the voice of the Lord. Do not do what you think you were about to do. And Balaam beats the donkey and he arrives at the promontory where he is supposed to attack the Jews and he opens his mouth and God possesses him and he praises the Jews instead of attacking them. And um, uh, that story has some resonance for me with Biden because I would have expected him to give up the ghost long before now on this matter. What's most important here is I don't think it matters in the terms of this conflict. That is to say, Israel is going to do what Israel has to do. There is 90% support or something like that in Israel for the mission of destroying Hamas utterly. And uh, Israel is a democratic country represented by democratic politicians, and they will do what they have to do for their voters uh, and will not be pushed around so easily by the United States. That said, I'm deeply concerned about the Democratic Party. I'm deeply concerned about these numbers about youth in the Democratic Party and how they feel about this. And uh, and I have been for a decade or more, you know as well as I, that there was this moment in 2012 at the Democratic uh, Presidential Convention in Philadelphia when the mayor of Los Angeles, Antonio Villagorosa, was simply getting the crowd to affirm an assent to the Democratic Party platform, which said that Jerusalem should be the capital of Israel. And from the floor of the convention, there was a revolt against this provision. And uh, people started screaming and yelling. And then Viga Rosa said, "Okay, we'll do this by voice vote. You know, who who says yay and who says nay? And the and the nays were overwhelmingly louder than the yeas. And then Villagrosa said, the measure is passed, meaning I'm not listening to you. I had forgotten this is that. How we're gonna... That might have been the, yeah. I think the whole party's there 11 now. years ago. If, if, yeah. if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and Lloyd Austin are the dam, I'm expecting the Johnstown flood. John Podoritz of Commentary, thank you for joining me. Everyone should listen to the podcast. It is amazing. It's got five or six people every single day, Monday through Friday. And go to commentary.com. Look for the donate button. Help them. John, ask repeatedly. Commentary.org. Yeah. Year-end. Completely tax-deductible. Commentary.org. 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 And donate. Thank you, John Podhoritz. Follow him on exit, J. Podhoritz, and go to commentary.org and donate. Let me remind everyone that in this week of Christmas, a lot of people don't have a lot of fun because their mom or their dad or both of their parents are in jail. And that's where Angel Tree steps in. Angel Tree steps in and provides a present for the children of the incarcerated, a note from mom or dad. And you did some Christmas. I did Christmas shopping during the Browns' wonderful victory Always, never in doubt, not in the least in doubt yesterday. Absolutely not in doubt at all over the Bears. I'm on right now in Chicago, and it was never in doubt, right? You knew you were going to lose. Even when the Hail Mary bounced out of the hands of your receiver in the end zone and into our backup safety's hands on the Hail Mary at the last play. Never in doubt. Nothing. At Joe Flacco, he's going to go into the Hall of Fame wearing a Browns jersey, I'm pretty sure. But if you were – I was doing my Christmas shopping during the quarter breaks and when the Bears had the ball – but I didn't call in because I've already done my Angel Tree contribution. So I hope you will go to HughHewitt.com, 
Find the banner at the top. Listen to Joseph. He's one of the kids who receives a present. I will write to my dad about what it what happened. And one Christmas gift I got from Angel Tree was a drawing pad. That was my favorite I got. I also got paint and colored pencils. I knew he knew what I wanted, and he got the right thing. My name's Joseph, and I love Angel Tree. $25 connects a parent with a Joseph. $100 does it four times. $1,000 does it 40. Please be as generous as possible. The phone number is 888-206-2764. 888-206-2764. Or the banner at the top of HughHewitt.com. Welcome back, America. A few weeks ago, Dan Senor was my guest, and I asked him, Dan, what is the best book for Americans to read about Israel who know a little bit about the 1973 Yom Kippur War, and they know the Netanyahu years, but they don't really know much about the state. And he didn't hesitate. He said, Daniel Gordas, a concise hist- Israel, a concise history of a nation reborn. Daniel Gordas joins me now. Good morning, Daniel. Welcome, and thank you for being my guest. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Hugh. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. It's an honor to be with you. Well, let me tell you about Israel, a concise history of a nation reborn. I have never in my life listened to a book, uh, an audio book, twice back to back. I am now on the third listen to Israel, a concise history of a nation reborn, because boy, does it fill in the gaps that I did not have. As I said, I'm, I'm pretty well educated. I knew a lot about Israel, but I'm not Jewish, and I didn't know about anything from 1897 to 1948. How important is it for the contemporary American to understand that history, Daniel Gordas. Well, it's just, if you think about the American analogy, for example, how is it important to know about the debates that the founding fathers had in America before 1776? If you don't know anything about what happened before 1776, you can't really say anything about why the United States exists. You can't say anything about its dreams, about its purposes, about the reasons that the women and men that created the country got together to do it. And the same thing is true here. Israel didn't sprout out out of nowhere. The Jews didn't pick the Middle East specifically out of nowhere. Uh, There's a whole history here of why the Jews felt they needed a country, why they believed that country needed to be, and they had a right for it to be here, and so on and so forth. And one can disagree about many different political issues in Israel. A lot of Israelis disagree. Uh, But I think one does have to understand the origins of the story, as in any story, in order to be able to understand how it's playing out now. Now, Daniel, you're very, very rigorously fair. Like, you're not one of these people who say there was nobody in Palestine before the Jews from Europe came into via Theodor Herzl. It's really relentlessly objective. But you do begin at the beginning in sort of uh, prehistory, right up through the demolition of the Second Temple by the Romans and then up to the coining of the term Palestine in 160. How much does that matter when we have the anti-colonialist rhetoric of today, knowing that as you put it, the Bible is sort of a diary of the Jewish people. You read this book very carefully, my friend. But in any event, um, what I would say is I think it matters. It matters a lot. First of all, again, regardless of what one feels about the issue now, regardless of one where, where one is holding on one particular political issue or military issue or whatever, one of the things that's important in understanding any conflict, by the way, it can be a conflict between two siblings. It can be a conflict between partners. It can be a conflict in business. Try to understand where the other person's coming from, what the other person sees, what the other person believes. Uh, and so this whole colonialist notion, which is, you know, as you point out quite correctly, is becoming a huge issue, especially now. Um, we'll come back to colonialism and whether or not that's a term that's applicable in a second. But why did the Jews come here? Uh, and the reason the Jews came here is because 
Now, yes, the Bible is um, the diary of the Jewish people to a certain extent. I think that's an interesting, that's a thoughtful, for me at least personally, a useful way uh, to think about it. But the Bible is also a book with some historical record, obviously. The Jews were here for a very long time. That does not give them the right to the land in and of itself, no question. If the, if the Norwegians were to come and say, every place that the Vikings ever had, we wanted back, that's ludicrous. I'm not, I don't use that analogous in order to say, well, we had it once, so we get it back again. But why did they choose to come here? One needs to understand what was in their heart, what was in their soul, in their mind. They had never really left. They'd been forced out temporarily, but it was always in their own mind temporarily. And again, disagree with them. You can agree with them. You can partly agree with them. But one can't understand the passion of the Jewish people for recreating their state specifically here without understanding how in our tradition, this was home. This is where our people was born. By the way, that's what the opening sentence of the Israeli Declaration of Independence says. The land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Um, and in order to understand why the Jews feel the way that they do, or some Jews, not all Jews, but why Israelis especially feel about the land of Israel the way that they do, uh, understanding our longstanding connection to this land is critically important. Now, here you mentioned the issue of colonialism. And here I'll only say, for colonialism, one has to be sent. In other words, the, the, the British sent colonialists to North America. Uh, the Spaniards spent, sent colonialists to South America. Uh, the French sent colonialists to North Africa and many other places. Nobody sent the Jews. It's not colonialism. One can argue the Jews have done this wrong. You can argue the Israelis have done this incorrectly. You can argue that the Israelis are mishandling the current war in one way, that way, or another way. That's all legitimate. But the whole idea of colonialism means some empire sent you there to expand its borders, to expand its land holdings. Nobody sent the Jews anywhere. The Jews went back because it was the only place that they could possibly imagine where the world might finally leave them alone. They had two very incorrect assumptions towards the end of the 19th century. One was they would go back there and the world would leave them alone. And the other was, because they would finally have a country of their own, the rest of the world would stop seeing them as being so odd and so always latching on to whatever country was willing to hold on to them. And therefore, anti-Semitism in Europe and the rest of the free world would disappear. Neither of those two things happened. And in that, Theodor Herzl got things entirely wrong. Um, he, he was wrong that the world would accept the Jews and that the local Arab population, which he knew very well existed here. He just thought it would be embraced by the Arab population, and we weren't. Um, and he also thought that once the Jews had a country of their own, the Western world would no longer perceive the Jews as anomalies and would therefore stop hating them. Um, and as we are tragically able to see these days, that didn't happen either. Daniel Gordon, if we gave sort of the basic eighth grade test of American history to American kids today, they might know who Ben Franklin is. They might not know who John Jay is. There would be a spectrum of, of knowledge. What level of historical knowledge do Israelis have about the 50 years prior to the founding of the state. I'm just curious, generally in Israel, yeah. are they as educated about their history as Americans are about our history? Well, Israelis, like Americans, aren't monolithic, right? There are some Americans who got really good educations, who went to really good high schools or good colleges, who could tell you a lot. And there's some Americans who would think Ben Franklin something about, you know, a kite and lightning, and that would be the end of it. There's a lot of Americans that never heard about Alexander Hamilton until they went to Broadway. Yes. So, I mean... Um, and, you know, so Americans aren't monolithic and the French aren't monolithic and the Germans aren't monolithic and the Israelis aren't monolithic. I would say as a whole, Israelis tend to know a little bit more about their pre-country history. 
um, largely because, of course, it's in the lifetime of their grandparents. There's still many people around today who are alive who fought in our war of independence, which is obviously not the case uh, in Israel. But I would say uh, it's not nearly as good as it needs to be. 2023 um, is almost over, so we can say was, I think. 2023 was the worst year in Israel's history by far because between January and September, it was ripped apart by internal divides over revising the Israeli judicial system. And that made many people go back to the Declaration of Independence for the very first time and read it and read it carefully and ask themselves why their country was founded. And now that we are really in an existential war, which I don't think most of our viewers and listeners understand why this war is existential, and we can come back to that. But now that we're literally in a war for our lives in this country, um, again, a younger generation is being forced to ask ourselves, so how did we get here? Why does this matter? Who said what? I think we're better educated, but we're also learning very quickly that we also, like Americans, have a much better job to do. Well, what I think is is crucial for people to understand, Daniel Gordas, is that for those 50 years before 1948, there wasn't consensus. There were people who wanted to establish a Jewish state. There were people that wanted to establish in Palestine a center of Jewish cultural excellence, there were statists and anti-statists. There were religious Jews and anti-religious Jews. There's David Ben-Gurion, and there's Menachem Begin, and there's Jabotinsky, and there are all sorts of different people. It's a wild mosaic. But what I wanted to ask you most importantly is in the book you say that at times of crisis, the Jewish people have always come together. Is that true today, and do you think that will endure in the next? It's The, the war is now 10 weeks old. It could go 10 months. It could go a year and a half. It, it's a big war. Right. Do you think they will hold together? Uh, first of all, you're right. I think the answer is yes. In this war so far, Israelis have found themselves very much pulled together. After our worst internal divides in history, we are probably more united as a people than we ever were. If on October 5th, we were unprecedentedly torn apart, and there were people that were talking about the possibility of civil war, then on October 8th, the day after the attack, um, I think Israelis were together and still remain together more than ever before. Is that going to last forever? Look, it's not going to last forever because part of the reason that we're so united uh, is the crucible of this existential threat. There are guys in tanks who voted for Netanyahu, and there's guys in tanks who would never vote for Netanyahu. There's guys in tanks who are religious and have one view of Israel, and there's guys in tanks in the same exact tank who have a very different vision. As long as they're in the tank fighting for themselves and their parents and their siblings back home, there's going to be a certain amount of unity. Now, Hugh, I think what we're beginning to see 10 weeks in uh, is that the objectives of this war, which are twofold, destroy Hamas utterly, completely render Hamas non-existent. Um, that is proving a much more elusive goal of this war than Israel's leaders thought it would or said that it would. I think they were wrong. They thought it would be okay. I think they, they just surprised by how powerful Hamas is. And the other is getting the hostages back. Tragically, the majority of hostages that we're getting back now, we're getting back as bodies. And um, the idea that we're going to restore all the hostages also seems like a very far-fetched notion. Um, and just in Haaretz this morning, Haaretz is Israel's kind of paper of record. The, United, the New York Times sort of speak of Israel, like the New York Times, a little bit left-leaning, um, like the New York Times, somewhat controversial at times. But it is Israel's paper of record, basically. And just this morning in Haaretz, there was a headline that said, um, Israelis beginning to re regroup as the ends of the war begin to appear unreachable. Um, and therefore, I think once Israelis decide that mm, we may not be able to pull this off, we're going to see bickering. It's very important to remember from the point of view of Israelis, we have a son in the war. 
Uh, you know, we have a son who's very much in harm's way. This particular week, he's not in, um, which is why I'm able to be in the States. I would never leave if he was actually, you know, in combat. But um, I'm in the States this week because he got a week off. Um, but as one of, you know, hundreds of thousands of Israeli parents who have kids in harm's way, one of the things that we're struggling with is that the people that got us into this horrible mess are the people who are actually running the war now. Now, the people who so misjudged Hamas, the people who got it all wrong on intelligence, the people who put the army in all the wrong places, the people who trusted that a high-tech small army was sufficient and said that a big, large armed army wasn't that critical, the people who got everything wrong are the people who are now running this business. If they were running it and they'd proven successful in six or seven or eight weeks, you'd say, okay, they got it wrong, but they regrouped. But I think the longer this war goes on and the more it appears to Israelis that, wow, we may not actually achieve these aims, the more it's going to dawn on Israelis, wow, the people that got us into this mess through utter incompetence are the people who are actually running the war now. And the, the patience for having bodies come back day after day, four, six, eight, four, nine, seven, that sort of number, but it's a grinding number of people. Um, Patience may run out, and when that happens, politics will bubble to the surface and divisions will return. I'll be right back with Daniel Gordas after the break. I'm going to talk to him off air, and we'll put that in the podcast at Highly Concentrated View, but don't go anywhere. He will be right back, except to Amazon and get Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn. I recommend the audiobook, but get one of them. I'm back with Daniel Gordas for a brief segment when we're not on the radio show, but it'll be in the podcast. Daniel, you were just saying the consensus breaking down. When you have an existential war, and I believe that as a Gentile in America, since the GoPro pogrom erupted, you wrote a lot about Kishinev changing the opinion of Jewry worldwide. That was a very famous, infamous pogrom where, what, 100 people were killed and thousands were terrorized. Doesn't this change? Uh, it was actually fun- less. It was, a few dozen, it was a few dozen people. It had an outsized impact because of poetry that was written about it and kind of captured the imagination of Jews and said, this is no way for a people to live. So the actual numbers were relatively small, but the impact on the soul um, was huge. So what do you think relatively? This is so much bigger. What is the impact on the Israeli soul going to be? We'll talk about the politics on the other side of the break. I think it will fundamentally transform it. But what's happened? What do you think? It's a wild guess. It's 10 weeks, but it's got to be... Uh, fundamentally uh, different now? It's unbelievable. I mean, it's very hard to describe how Israel feels. Even I have one kid who lives in L.A. right now. Um, and obviously, he speaks Hebrew. He was raised in Israel. He's thoroughly Israeli. He reads the Israeli news. But he came to visit us a couple of weeks into the war. And after we'd been in our house for a day or two, he said, you know what, mom and dad, you can understand exactly what's happening from afar because you read the paper, but you can't understand how broken this country feels. Look, when Al-Qaeda decided to attack New York City, um, it decided to attack the World Trade Center specifically because the World Trade Center was the fundamental emblem of what made America great. It's financial success, uh, you know, Manhattan, all of that. Um, what, what Hamas did on October 7th was to hit Israel in its softest point. Israel had made the Jewish people one fundamental promise. The attacks on innocent Jewish civilians, mass death, rape, beheading, mutilation, burning of bodies, the things that happened all over Europe between the mid-1800s and then, of course, culminating in the Holocaust, that is done. That is over. Because we have Israel, that cannot happen. Europe will not come here. You, Europe came here. 
women were raped and things were done that I won't even begin to discuss on this program. Bodies were burnt so badly, people had no idea that they were even human except by doing some sort of DNA test or, or whatever. People were literally beheaded. And as you pointed out, you called it the GoPro program. They took pictures of themselves beheading bodies. I've unfortunately seen this 47-minute oh. movie that journalists have been shown. Um, and you literally see a person holding a helmet and a head and taking a knife and just sawing off the neck of a, of a soldier. I mean, an 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid. Um, it's brutal. But why did they do that? Why didn't they attack the tall buildings in Tel Aviv or whatever? Because the tall buildings in Tel Aviv are not the essence of what we are. The essence of what we are are women and men and children living in small little villages, rebuilding Jewish life and living. These were, by the way, left-wing people. These were peacenik people. They killed so many peace activists, it's impossible to count. But they didn't care about that because this was not about achieving peace. This was about hitting us where we live. This was about saying, you're wrong. The, 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 the fragility and the, the vulnerability and the potential victimhood that was Europe, it's right where you are now. And that's what makes it existential. If we can't defeat it, then what we have to basically say to ourselves, our children and our grandchildren is, well, the purpose of the country proved not achievable. We're going to be vulnerable here just like we were vulnerable anywhere else. Uh, and if Israel can't convince its citizens that they are fundamentally safe, uh, it's going to be very hard to convince the wealthiest, most successful uh, you know, Israelis to stay here for the very long haul. You know, just imagine for one second. Daniel, we got to go back on the air. Stand by for a second. We got to go right back on the air and we'll pick right up on that. Welcome back, America. If you don't know what labor Zionism is, if you don't know how Hebrew came back to be the language of modern Israel, if you don't know about the Zion Mule Corps, if you don't know about the heroes of the Jewish world that parachuted into Hungary, I didn't know anything about that until I read Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn. You want to get Daniel Gordis's book, but I want to update us to the, this. That's the history. Jewish courage has always triumphed and Jewish cohesiveness has always come together. But this existential threat we were talking about during the break, how do you defeat that? I, I mean, you have to rip the tunnels out. You have to fill them with seawater. And then I think you have to go to war with Hezbollah, don't you, eventually? Yeah. I mean, look, there are 200,000 Israelis who are currently displaced inside Israel. They are refugees, but they're inside Israel because it's too dangerous to live along the Gaza border and it's too, later, too dangerous to live along the northern border. I mean, no country can allow that. If San Diego was being pummeled by people in Tijuana who had dug tunnels and accumulated mortars and were flinging things at San Diego, you know, how long would the United States military allow that thing to exist? And how much would the United States military care if people said, well, you're killing innocent Mexicans as that's happening? People would be sad about the innocent life, but they would say, this grew up in your area. This is going to be eradicated. That's the only way to think about what's going on in Israel. Israelis are not going to stop. Um, but, you know, there's a there's a timeline. There's a time ticking time, so to speak, a stopwatch of the international community, how long they're going to let us do this. There are unfortunately very high Israeli casualties coming back from the battles in Gaza. But yes, ultimately, Hezbollah cannot be allowed to be where it is now in complete violation of United Resolution 1701, which after the Second Lebanon War said they couldn't be anywhere within those five southern kilometers. And they're all there in, in Lebanon. Israel has a lot of work ahead of it. We probably tragically have many hundreds of casualties ahead of us. Uh, Israelis were asleep at the wheel for probably decades and allowed existential threats to grow on our south in Gaza, our north in Lebanon, and off to the east in Iran. There's an awakening in Israel. We can't live this way any longer. And 
The United States can think what it does. Europe can think what it does. But we're going to do here exactly what the United States would do if that threat was coming from Mexico or Canada. So, Daniel, the big head fake in history is that Sadat came and made peace with Menachem Begin. By the way, after reading your book, I want to learn more about Begin because he's a very interesting guy. I just know him from Camp David and, and the first conservative in the 82 Lebanon war. I just don't know much about him, but he's a very interesting man. And I learned that from your book. But the fundamental conception was wrong about what the Arab states wanted. And I and the Abraham Accords may have advanced that fundamental misconception as well. Hamas doesn't want that. I don't know that the Palestinian Authority wants that. They want to kill Jews. And that's the big difference between 10-6 and 10-8, isn't it? That there is no satisfying this element of the uh, Arab world. And I don't know how you get out of that. And does that mean Israeli politics will move even further towards a aggressive defense? I'm not going to use conservative liberal because it's not really a conservative liberal argument. Right. It's, it's about how powerful does the state become? Do you think it moves that way? I think it has to. Uh, and I agree with you. It's not a matter of liberal or conservative or right or left. I mean, a lot of friends have said to me, well, we're all, we're all the Israeli progressives that I hear about. And I say, they're in the cockpits dropping the bombs. They're in the tanks firing the mortars. Because Hamas wanted to kill the children and the grandchildren of the progressives and the liberals and whatever, as much as they wanted to kill the children and the grandchildren of the right. And in fact, the people seem that were attacked, as I mentioned to you before, are actually overwhelmingly much more left-leaning. They were not a stronghold of Bibi Netanyahu's voting block and so forth. Uh, yeah, so I don't think we're going to move to the right. We're going to move to being much more focused on defense. We're very fortunate that Arab states states actually very much wanted to make a deal with Israel. The peace with Egypt is held for 40-something years. The peace with Jordan is held well since 94. Uh, the ink on the UAE Accords, you know, the Abraham Accords, is not all that dry, and they've stuck by us. Uh, this probably erupted when it did because Saudi Arabia seemed very likely to about to normalize its relationships with Israel. Arab states have understood that Israel is here. It's here to stay. It's a huge contribution to the region. It's a protection against Iran. Um, but there's something about the Palestinian people that I believe, and I think increasingly number, increasing numbers of Israelis believe, has nothing to do with independence, nothing to do with a desire for a Palestinian state, and everything to do with the slaughtering of Jews. And now that Israelis left and right and religious and secular and young and old basically can't avoid that evidence anymore, um, yeah, I think Israeli politics and Israeli military policy is going to become much more hard-nosed. Not much, you know, well, we'll look the other way. We'll send them some more money. They won't fire that stuff if we keep them happy. No, they can't have it. And whatever it's going to take for us to make sure they don't have it is what we're going to do. It could take months. It could take years. Are you going to revise Israel a concise history soon? Because it's it's fundamentally different now. Yeah, it is fundamentally different. And I have another book that came out this last year called Impossible Takes Longer, uh, which is an analysis of how successful Israel's been 75 years in. And that came out right before uh, the judicial thing almost ripped Israel apart. And um, yes, so the answer is I very much would like to revise Israel, um, uh, the concise history. I think there's two major, there's three major pieces that have to get added to the book. One is the hold, Abraham Accords. Hold that is, thought. I want to hear that after the break, but we have to sign off and then come back. We'll put the three parts that will be in the revision, and then I'll wrap up talking to Daniel Gordis. Go get the book, Israel, a concise history, because you'll learn stuff. You never knew. I mean, you will learn about 
the, the Balfour Declaration and how Hyam Weitzman brought that to be. We'll learn about Harry Truman and his Jewish friend from Missouri going along with it. You'll learn stuff you need to know because it's not a colonial, colonial, anti-colonial story. It's a story of the people returning to a land that they always treasured and held close to their hearts. I am back now with Daniel. Daniel, what revisions have to come into Israel, a concise history? I did read, by the way, Perfect Takes Longer, and I didn't even know that there was an Israeli Declaration of Independence. I, you know, why would I? But now I do, and, and I thought right, it was... Well, a- how much do you and I know about, you know, Ireland or right. uh, any African nation? I mean, we, we know certain things. We don't know other things. That's totally normal for all of us. Uh, I would say that the three main things that have to get looked at are, number one, the Abraham Accords, which fundamentally transforms the Middle East because Israel's got uh, now a peace arrangement or normalization, whatever you want to call it, with the United Arab Emirates and with Bahrain, changes the entire calculus vis-a-vis Iran and so on and so forth. Then, of course, the judiciary, the judicial fight over the independence of Israel's judiciary, which took over basically from December of 2022 till September of 23, almost ripped Israel to shreds shows both the fragility of Israel's judiciary and its democracy, but also the profound belief that millions of Israelis have and their commitment to it. That's a part of the story. And then this war. Uh, so the book does need to be revised. I don't know how quickly we'll do it. That's more up to the publisher than it is to me. Um, but I would imagine that at some point I'll get a call or an email and they'll say it's time for a couple more revisions. And I would be delighted and honored to do it. I would say, Hugh, you know, if everybody read the book as carefully as you, um, it would be an even more satisfying thing for an author. But to speak to someone like you who has read the book so carefully and intuited its message so deeply is unbelievably satisfying. And I just want to thank you for the heartwarming read, uh, because for all the hundreds and hundreds of hours that go into writing a book, to have someone like you really take from it what you have is, is, is profoundly moving. It's beautifully done. And to interweave the story of the poetry of the movement, along with the blood, sweat and tears of the movement, and the very different faction I now have a grip on it. Last question, very last question, Daniel. Israel has always confronted its failures with a commission. And there was a commission after the 73 Concepcion or whatever it was called fell apart and Golda Meir stepped down. Who will lead that? Is there anyone in Israel that people would look to and say, or five of them, that they would look to and trust to examine what happened going and, and accountability? These commissions have typically been run by former Supreme Court justices. And if I had a guess, that would be the case here now. Again, it's not a it's not a slam dunk. The Supreme Court became a rather controversial body because of the whole judicial reform. Uh, But it'll be a person who's not a politician. It'll be a person who's not an academic in all likelihood. It'll be someone who's above the fray. That tends to be someone from the higher echelons of the judiciary. It is going to be, as they say, the mother of all commissions. There's a tremendous amount to investigate here. There may be more than one commission. We'll see. But this is going to be investigated deeply. And as you intimated earlier, the the political earthquakes that are going to come from this are going to reshape Israel, not for months and not for years, but for decades ahead. Whatever Israel ends up looking like between now and as long as you and I are likely to grace this planet, um, Israel is going to be changed because of what happened on October 7th. I agree with that. As the Civil War was the second founding of the United States, I think 10-7 is going to lead to a second founding of Israel, and it will be interesting. And Daniel Gordis will be one of our interpreters of that. Daniel, welcome back to the States. Have a good trip and safety to your son. Prayers for everyone in Israel. Thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you, Hugh. It's a great honor to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. 